Krista Halverson is the director of Shakespeare and Company Bookstore's publishing venture. Previously, she was the managing editor of Zoetrope, All Story, the art and literary quarterly published by Francis Ford Coppola, which has won several national magazine awards for fiction and numerous design prizes. She was responsible for the magazine's art direction, working with guest designers including Lou Reed, Kara Walker, Mikhail Baryshnikov, Zaha Hadid, Wim Wenders, and Tom Waits, among others. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thanks for having me. You edited Shakespeare and Company, A History of the Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, which was published by Shakespeare and Company, the bookstore in Paris, which is quite appropriate. Yeah, it's the first book that the bookshop has published. Okay. And where can you find it? Uh, it's available all over, obviously, at Shakespeare and Company and at our website where we sell books. Um, but it's also distributed in the States and Canada and the UK and around the world by Artbook, DAP in the States, and by uh, Thames and Hudson everywhere else. Thames and Hudson, that's a venerable art book venture. Yes, yeah, we were really happy when they picked us up. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's start early on in the history of the company, or the bookstore. Sylvia Beach, who was she? Uh, Sylvia Beach was an American woman uh, who had come to France in 1917, after the war. And she was living here with her sister, and that year she met a woman, a French woman named Adrienne Monnier who was the first French woman to own her own bookstore, a bookstore called, uh, I always mess this up, it's terrible. <laughs> you mean the French pronunciation or? Well, no, I'm going to destroy all my French pronunciations. <laughs> I know your wife is, Fran is uh, French, and so you will be appalled, and any of your <laughs> listeners who speak French will be appalled. La Maison des Amis des Livres. That's pretty good. Okay, yeah. It's not horrible. Yeah. No. Uh, so wait a minute, she's the first... French woman to own a bookstore in France? Yes, Adrienne Monnier. So what, women weren't allowed to own bookstores before that? I, I imagine had to do with capital. Um, I don't know if the laws had changed at the turn of the century that allowed women to have capital as it did in other countries. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But So Adrienne Monnier had the first, first French woman to have a bookstore in France. And okay. it was really quite immediately a salon for all the big French writers at that time. Right. Um, going back to Sylvia Beach, she was just walking around the Latin Quarter, the Sixth Salon du Smont one day, and she happened to pass this bookshop. And she went in and she met Adrienne Monnier. And it seems like a great, there was a great spark between these two women. Mm -hmm. And, well, Sylvia Beach uh, never said it was a sexual or romantic relationship. I think mm -hmm. that's what her biographer, most historians, Understand was that it was a love affair between these two women. Who's the biographer? Uh, Noel Riley Fitch is the most prominent of okay. uh, Beach's biographers. Okay. Uh, but also a woman named Carrie Walsh edited Sylvie Beach's letters that came out about like four years ago, okay. five years ago. Uh, so these two women met, and Sylvia Beach had always wanted to have a bookshop. She had thought of opening a French bookshop in New York, but her mind was changed, either persuaded by Adrienne Monnier or 
she changed it herself, to have an English language bookshop in Paris. And so uh, Monnier helped Sylvia Beach find a shop not far from her own bookstore, which was on Rue de l'Odion. Uh, they found a spot on a nearby street called Rue des Britain. Okay. Megan corrects me. <laughs> I, I, I would if I could. Okay, uh, we'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> she asked her mother to help her financially, and with that, she opened a bookshop on uh, November 19th, 1919. Wow, that's significant, That certainly the year. I'm mean, coming up on the... In what way? Well, there's some, I think, of the negotiations at the end of World War I, uh, mm-hmm. 1919 was a pivotal year. Actually, it's a, it's a great book by a Canadian, Margaret Macmillan. Mm, yeah, I don't know it. Which won the Governor General's Award some years back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay, yeah. I digress. No, it's okay. Okay. Uh, so she opened this bookstore and... Yeah. And it, the, the anniversary's coming up, a yeah. big, big one, yeah. Yeah, next November will be the 100th anniversary. Yeah. So, so she was there, uh, and I think because of her relationship with Adrien Monnier, lots of these well-known, established French writers would come to Beach's shop to buy English-language books. And around the same time, all these great uh, Anglophone expats also found Beach's shop. So right away, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas showed up. And we'll they just sort of hung out there, did they? Yeah, I think so. I, mm-hmm. What Monier had established with her shop, which Beach then reconstructed, was really to have something more of a salon. Like, yeah. not the French-style bookshops, which I understand could be quite, you know, for lack of another word, stuffy, yeah. you know, quite yeah. formal. They put in couches and reading chairs and uh, at least in beaches there was a cat you know sure so it was a very in a certain kind of bookshop there has to be a cat yeah so hers was that kind of shop and she hung on the walls pictures of all the writers who she most admired number one being Walt Whitman and uh, the other being William Shakespeare so not photograph but uh, an image Mm -hmm. of William Shakespeare Mm -hmm. so she invited in a community basically yeah, and I think at that time, I'm trying to think if there were other English language bookshops in Paris at that time. You know, I don't know. I do believe it was before the American uh, Library opened, but that maybe you know that had to come not long. 1920, that was. Yeah, so not long after, so the next mm-hmm. year. But there really, I think you had a lot of expats, uh, Anglophone expats in Paris at that time, and not a place to buy books. Mm hmm. Uh, and not this and this clubby atmosphere uh, that her shop provided. So they also said it was like this great meeting point too between the French writers and the American and British the British writers. That was this place where they all came to know one another. And so where did she get the books from? She just sort of import them, or what? Import new books, or how did she, how did she do I, that? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm sure I've read at some point, but I don't know the answer to that. So uh, the community that came in there and uh, started hanging out, you mentioned uh, Gertrude Stein. Who else? Well, Hemingway came before Hemingway was famous. Mm -hmm. Um, This is still when he was a journalist, a sports journalist for the Canadian newspaper. I can't remember. Toronto Star. The Toronto Star. Uh, And so he started hanging out there. Or maybe it was a telegram, sorry. But But it's Toronto, yeah. 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 Uh, But Beach really, I think both Hemingway and Beach took a quick liking uh, to one another. Uh, He said about her... Was there a sexual thing going on there or not? No, I don't know. I don't think so. And and Hemingway, I mean, I think Hemingway was always with a woman. Yeah. And I think then he was with Hadley. It was before he had the baby. 
this is not helpful. The baby whose name was like Bumble something. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Do you know? No idea. No. <laughs> uh, it's okay, we're focusing okay. on the bookstore. We yeah. don't care about uh, yeah. well, We do, but um, okay. Yeah, no, and uh, Beach was known for having, maybe I can just pause this sure. quickly and uh, grab this wonderful quote that uh, Hemingway wrote about Sylvia Beach in uh, A Movable Feast, which is his memoirs of his early days in Paris. Mm. Uh, he writes about Sylvia Beach. Sylvia had a lively, sharply sculptured face, brown eyes that were as alive as a small animal's and as gay as a young girl's. She was kind, cheerful, and interested, and loved to make jokes and gossip. No one that I ever knew was nicer to me. Mm. Uh, so she really, so as I said, like Hemingway came before he was famous and he was doing sports writing, and uh, he and his wife, which I'm pretty sure was happy at the time, would bring Sylvia Beach and Adrienne Mournier to some of these great, like, boxing events with them. Mm -hmm. and, and Not bullfighting in Paris, though. No, no, no bullfighting in Paris. I think they went to, what is it, where you ride the bikes around in circles, a velodrome. I think there's a big velodrome in Paris at that time, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of boxing matches. Okay. Um, but Hemingway, young Hemingway, you know, was still young Hemingway. When, when uh, his first book came out, he got a bad review from, I'm, well, I'm forgetting the name of the man, but somebody who hung out a lot of beaches. And mm. uh, he came into the bookshop in the Shakespeare and Company to complain about this review he got, and he got himself so worked up, uh, and Beach had this huge bouquet of tulips that he ended up just punching this uh, vase, and the tulips and everything uh, went everywhere. But anyway, they were. I think she really encouraged him. Uh, but did, he didn't punch the reviewer, though. He, he didn't. The... No, but there was another. You'll have to delete this because I can't remember the other the story exactly. But uh, there was a real tough guy who also a tough guy writer who also hung out yeah, at the he, bookshop. Yeah, yeah, Callahan, Morley Callahan. And this and Beach. He's a Canadian, and they okay. they had a boxing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Beach uh, took credit in her memoirs, uh, which came out in 1958, of really having set up this. Uh, this fight. This, yeah, this fight between the two. See a little Canadian content there. That's yeah. always good. Uh, okay, so what did she? So as a as her goal, what did she have as a goal? Do you think with this job? Well, my impression about Beach, which is the same as George Whitman's, who founded the current Shakespeare and Company, which we'll get to, is I think um, the two of them just loved writers. George would say that, or maybe Sylvia Beach would say about herself that she was just Shakespeare's errand boy. And I think that's how George saw himself too, and what their role was in the literary world was really to facilitate writers in yeah. the ways that one can to make the writers' lives easier and to hold up their books. And holding up their books also meant putting their books in contact with readers. That's what publishers do. I mean, yeah. they, they want to bring attention to, to great talent. Mm -hmm. And I think for, for both of them, you know, uh, Beach would get, you know, people would just come to France and wouldn't necessarily have a permanent address, so she encouraged people to use the bookshop's address as their mailing address. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was part post office. She would lend them money when they needed to, you know, we'll get to James Joyce. I mean, mm -hmm. she essentially gave him an, <laughs> an extraordinary amount of money mm -hmm. uh, at her own cost. And she was, you know, this great cheerleader for these writers. Like I was just saying about Hemingway coming in. I mean, I think she was that 
sort of best friend that year for one to talk about his or her career and their writing. And I think she was endlessly positive and encouraging. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something too when the person in that role, this is true for a lot of editors and publishers, when they're not writers themselves and it removes mm-hmm. that, that, yeah, that competition, mm-hmm. I think that, that underlies a lot of relationships between, between writers. Yeah. Okay, so we've got Hemingway. Anyone else? Uh, Juno Barnes. Spent quite a bit of time again, like the French writers, like Louis. She was famous lesbian, right? Yeah, she wrote *Nightwood* as her um, mm-hmm. most famous book. I've got a uh, first edition of that. Oh, extraordinary! New, new directions. It's kind of a purple and black and white color mm. cover. Could be by Alvin Lustig. How extraordinary! Where did yeah. you come by that? You know where it was. Um, Flagstaff. Really. Arizona. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the bookstore. Did they know what they had, or? Yeah, I think they did. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 35, 40 bucks. Oh, that's not bad. That's yeah. not, what a nice book. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna look at my little notes. Slash, read my own book is my. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking through it this morning. And I was like, how sad that my like, <laughs> brushing up for an interview is reading my own book. Uh, so, with who else came uh, to the bookshop? Uh, there was the French, as I mentioned, like André Marot, Jules Romain, Louis Aragon, and also T.H. Lawrence, Ezra Pound, Thornton Wilder, wow. after, which we'll get to, I'm sure, after Sylvia Beach published, who's the first publisher of James Joyce's Ulysses, mm. uh, Anais Nin and Henry Miller came to the bookshop asking her if uh, she would publish Tropic of Cancer, which she said no. She always said she was a, a one-book or one-author publishing house. Okay. Uh, and the Fitzgeralds uh, both hung out there as well. Okay, that's pretty good company to keep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so this is the early 20s then? Yeah. So when does Joyce show up on the scene? Around really, about soon, then? really soon after Beach opened her shop, okay. she met him at a, a luncheon at uh, a French author, Andres. I don't know if you say Spire or Spire. Okay. S-P-I-R-E. Uh, she met him... Uh, Joyce was also at this luncheon, and they were eating, and Andre Spears' dog came in and was barking, and it turns out that, you know, Joyce, I think somewhat famously, is very scared of dogs, and got up quite quickly, excused himself from his table, and went into a back room, and Beach followed him and started talking to him, and he quite quickly was telling her how upset he was over the fate of Ulysses. He had been writing the book, you know, in these famous chapters, and that and the chapters individually had been appearing in literary journals in the U.S. and mm-hmm. the U.K. That Weaver? Um, Weaver? No, Harriet Weaver was his sponsor. Later um, on? Okay. Yeah, it was, um, I should know their names. It's, it's a little review in the States, oh, which yes. was run by two women. Yeah, I mean, it's really very all, courageous. And I think what I'll just say, as we tell this story, you just see there's so many women. We, we talk about these great men, expat male writers of the 20s, yes. plus Gertrude Stein, you know, that's kind of our conversation. But behind this, it's just all of Joyce's, almost all of Joyce's sponsors, financial sponsors were women. Yeah. Um, with maybe the exception of, I think his name is John Quinn. Uh, but the women who were publishing these little magazines, these little journals, were mostly women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was they who, in the States, and I do wish I could remember their name, there's two women who published a little review. I'll put it into my little notes okay, for the show. Great. Yeah, so they, they were the ones who were taken to trial in an obscenity 
case. Mm. So essentially both the U.S. and the U.K.'s government had, had already deemed portions of Ulysses to be obscene. And in that way, no one in the U.S. or the U.K. would bring out the complete book because they already knew this is going to be embargoed and it's it's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. And the chances of making money off it are small and the chances of being sued and having to pay legal fees are very high. So this is when Beach meets uh, Joyce at this luncheon. He's telling her this story. And uh, she says to him, you know, well, perhaps Shakespeare and Company, you know, which is not published anything, has probably been open for a year at this point. You know, perhaps Shakespeare and Company could bring it out. And he comes to see the shop, you know, the next day, and he agrees to let Sylvia Beach bring out this book, hmm. which she does. So he, uh, so he's, you know, working on the manuscript, and people are typing it up. There's a quite funny story about. Um, a woman who's typing up the manuscript and her husband came home and started reading it and was you know, so upset by it, he threw it at the, the manuscript in the fire. I wonder if it was the masturbation scene. I don't know. I've not read it. Okay. I'm just going to admit that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we're here again to talk about the bookstore, yeah. so not to worry. So, not okay. to talk about, yeah, yeah. the masturbation scene in Ulysses Good. <laughs> <laughs> so Beach finds a printer in Dijon who is going to print this book, a mm. printer that, you know, fortunately um, does not speak English, and <laughs> yeah. so they don't understand exactly what they're publishing. They're sending back proofs. No uh, wonder it's so difficult to I read. I know. Well, and then there's this. So Beach gives the proofs to Joyce, who then proceeds to make an incredible amount of changes to mm. Beach's estimate, changes up to a third of Ulysses, both by striking things and adding things and moving things around, mm-hmm. all on the proofs, which are then going back to Dijon to yeah. also, again, like these not English speakers, so they don't know what they're publishing, but also they're having to enter all these corrections changes, in, yeah. old, in old typesetting, which I'm sure the mistakes in that. <laughs> Those first editions. That's mm-hmm. really charming. famous line is that it's kept the scholars busy for centuries. Which is the this. book. So not, not only are they worrying about exactly what the, you know, the accurate text is, but then once they've got that, then they can... They then can, they have to start all over, yeah, too, probably, yeah. once that came out. Yeah, I wonder when it got really cleaned up. There was the Random House... Adi- wasn't it Random House that was the first publish- big publisher in, in the States who brought it out? Yeah, there was an interesting article in The New Yorker just recently about mm-hmm. this uh, uh, slightly crazed professor who's ended up in Brazil. Who, uh, Is this about the missing Joyce scholar? Yeah. That was in The Times. Yeah, I printed yeah. out I haven't read Is it yet. Is that The Times? I thought it was in The New Yorker. I think it's in The Times. Okay. Yeah, I want to read it. Yeah, I it's fascinating. Right. Yeah, yeah, just fascinating, yeah. Although... This is interesting. I spoke with with someone uh, who had dealt with this this guy and mm-hmm. had uh, started to use some of his changes in in, a, in addition that they put out. He said he was one of the hardest people he ever he's ever dealt with. One of the most unpleasant people he's mm-hmm. ever dealt with. So this this article kind of champions the scholar yeah. in Brazil. Maybe not not the nicest person around. Yeah. But anyway. We're yeah. getting off topic again. No, it's okay. <laughs> so, how many? Do you know how many copies uh, she had printed off uh, for the for the first? I think first it was edition? just a thousand. Just a thousand. Uh, okay. And she was able to fund it. Uh, so they were working on it through 1921. She was able to fund it by um, pre-selling it through subscription. Oh, okay. okay. And so she sold that out, did she? Or I I I couldn't say. With a hundred percent certainty, but I would assume so. To raise enough to cover her cost, though. Yeah, okay. which we maybe covered her cost, but yeah. to raise revenue for it. Sure. 
I think, you know, in terms of her making money, I don't think she made money on it. Yeah. I think she was uh, financially supporting Joyce quite a bit. Like, he would just come in and She'd ask for money. And, yeah. yeah, and so I think there was a lot of advances. Okay. Um, and I would imagine all the changes he was making, too, to the proofs were adding to her costs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she, I th- she really never complained about that. I think it was people around her who would comment on but he was the financial... But of her, maybe? Well, just or? maybe the... I think he took advantage of everyone, is yeah, sort of yeah. my perception of Joyce. Yep, yep. But the financial sacrifices that she made to mm-hmm. bring out Ulysses, but she wrote in her memoir that, you know, the joy for her was bringing out the book. Like, that was the reward she wanted, mm-hmm. not uh, financial success. Uh, it certainly made her bookshop more well-known, you know, past the immediate literary mm-hmm. uh, expat circles. I think, you know, by the time the 30s come, there were, like, American Express tourist buses going past and pointing out the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mm-hmm. a, it was then a literary destination in its mm-hmm. time and, um, you know, within a decade of having published Ulysses. So what happened with those books? How did she distribute them? You know, so again, so they're worried about these embargoes because of, you know, it well, being obscene. That's right. They couldn't, I know they couldn't get them into the States. And then, well, there's an mm-hmm. interesting story about how Hemingway knew some guy in Canada. Windsor, Ontario, mm-hmm. exactly, who smuggled them across yeah. on, the, on the ferry. Yeah, so so Beach successfully, so I'll just backtrack quick, quick, the book came out on February 22nd, 22nd, 1922, I have to okay. double check, hold on, I'm going to say it again sure. to you. Yeah. Uh, so the, <laughs> book, <laughs> the book came out on February 2nd, uh, 1922, which mm-hmm. was Joyce's birthday, and uh, by come out, I just mean Beach that morning received two copies, copy number one and copy number two. And, you know, from Dijon. From Dijon. Okay. Those came on the train, the first uh, the 7 a.m. express from Dijon. And she went and met the conductor and got the book and went straight to uh, Joyce's to give him this copy number one on his birthday. Wow. I think he was quite a superstitious man, and he yeah. liked a harmony of, you know, the book arriving on his, on his birthday. I'm trying to remember the color of the cover. Is it kind of a teal or a green? What is it's it? it's this it's to be the same uh, blue as the Greek flag. I uh, think they spent also with the printers quite a bit of time trying to get just the right color blue. Okay, and it was a soft cover. They put it the was cover a soft on it, cover. which is not that usual in France. So they don't typically put a cover on it for oh, yeah, French books, know. but yeah. for, for English books, for obviously one, yeah. they do. Yeah. So that's interesting. And were they numbered or not? I do believe they are numbered. That's my impression. Right. So, so again, she had them obviously for sale in the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Well, the other ones went to the subscribers. And she writes in her memoir that she got all of the copies to subscribers in England there and in their hands successfully without incident. How did she do that? She Just by shipping them. Direct, Just putting directly. One by one? Yeah, that's my, yeah, that's okay. my understanding. Okay. But the copies that she sent into the States were stopped and uh, weren't allowed to go through and, and mm-hmm. didn't meet their customers. Okay. So she then, uh, and, and you, I think, know this story mm-hmm. about uh, Hemingway's great idea of how she can get copies into the States, which mm-hmm. was to send the books to a friend of his in what town? Windsor. In Windsor, Ontario. Yeah. Uh, and that he would then get on a ferry and travel by ferry, you know, with just a couple books each, each trip. Time, yeah, yeah, down to, in his... To Detroit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Huh? So that's how, in her words, she penetrated the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So that really put her on the map 
And so she continued to sort of serve as a sort of a community center for writers and supplying English language books to anyone who wanted to buy them in Paris. Yeah. And that went on for... 20 more years. 20 more years. Yeah, she closed in 41, so it's 20 years. She brought out more editions of Ulysses during that time. Mm -hmm. And she was also the publisher of uh, Joyce's poetry, a book called Poems Penny Each. Okay. And and one other book, a book, uh, I should know the name offhand, but I don't. It's a book about Finnegan's Wake, and it was essays written by, do you know what I'm talking Yeah, I'm is it a skeleton to? guide or not? Not I that one. I think that's the name Because that's of Joseph it. Campbell, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, this is, it's like 31, 32, and it was other quite famous writers of that time um, writing about Finnegan's Wake. Okay. No, I don't. It's, it's a long title I can't think of for. Okay. Um, but she was just interested in Joyce. Other people had tried to... Uh, yeah, like I said about uh, Henry Miller, and also D.H. Lawrence tried to persuade her to bring out Lady Chatterley's Lover, which mm-hmm. she also declined. She, she she kept on good terms with Joyce then? I think yes, for the most part. Again, as much as anybody was staying on good terms with Joyce. Joyce, he moved around a fair amount. He went to, did he go to Zurich yeah, after that? Yeah, he went to Zurich mm-hmm. after, which is where he died, isn't yeah. it? I mean, when did he die? Like, 32, 34? Bit later than that, and during the war. Okay, so... So you can go on to the book's closing. The what? The her, the Shakespeare and Company, Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company. Closing. That's right. It closes in 41 because of the war, right? Yeah. And then what happens? What does she do? She stays in Paris. So her bookshop closes in December 1941, and I'll just tell this, I think, quite well-known story about, well, well-known to people who know Beach and mm-hmm. um, who know Joyce about how the bookshop closed. And it was after um, the occupation of mm-hmm. Paris mm-hmm. by the Nazis, and a Nazi officer had come by her shop, and she had a copy of Finnegan's Wake in the window. And the officer came into the shop and said, I want to buy that, and Beach refused to sell it to him. Yeah. And he said, why? And she says, it's my last copy and it's mine. And he says, you either sell me this book or I'm coming back later this afternoon with my cohorts and we're going to shut down your shop. And she said, it's not for sale. And so he left angry. She shut the door and called her friends and they themselves closed down the bookshop that day. Mm -hmm. Um, Beach had an apartment above the shop um, I think on the third floor, and so they moved all of the books from the shop uh, up into her apartment, and her bookstore never reopened. Uh, where is that show? You said that it's, uh, what is it now? It's, uh, well, a clothing store or something? It's a clothing store. So that's on Rue de Lodion. So a year, she started on Rue Depritin, and then a year and a half after that, space became available opposite Adrienne Monnier's bookshop. Okay. And so then that's on uh, Rue de Lodion, and that's where she moved, and that's the space that's really associated with Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company. And there's a plaque there now, is there, or something? There is a plaque, um, but it wasn't put up by the city of Paris, interestingly. It was put up, I think, um, really led by uh, a writer named John Baxter, who writes a lot about Paris and Paris history. He does tours, doesn't he, too? I or? think so. Yeah. And he lives in that building in the where Sylvia Beach had her apartment. Okay. And I think he's campaigned the mairie, which is like the... City Hall for the arrondissement to put up a plaque because there's hundreds of plaques all over Paris mm-hmm. where famous um, writers and poets uh, have lived and publishers. And in the end, he 
worked, I think, with friends of his own to put up this plaque. Mm. Okay. Which is too bad. The yeah. Mary should really put up a plaque for Sylvia Beach. Yeah. And, yeah. Just because and she's English, maybe, or what? I don't know. I do think there's one across the street for, for Adrienne Monier. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. How far away from the current store, the Shakespeare and Company store? It's is about that? a 10-minute walk. Uh, okay, so she closes it down and then just sort of lives here? Yeah, she stayed in Paris in, in that same apartment in, uh, until her death in 1962. And what she do? She writes? She no, I, think she stayed, I think she stayed quite involved with literary Paris. She was really great friends with uh, Lawrence Durrell, who came uh, in the 50s and was a very big writer with his mm -hmm. Alexandria Quartet at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, and also with Richard Wright, who came late 40s, early 50s, mm -hmm. um, and lived quite near her uh, on uh, Rue Monsieur Le Prince. Um, and she was great friends with both of them, which is how she ends up meeting George Whitman, who founded this shop. Um, because George was also good friends with Lawrence Drill and uh, Richard Wright. So I think that uh, was their first and strongest connection. So, good. So George sets up his own bookstore in 51? In 51. So George Whitman was an American. He um, served in World War II, stationed primarily in Greenland. At a, <laughs> at a weather post. A lot of uh, Germans up there? You know, there's, uh, there weren't, but at that time, um, well, I should say, there were Germans, not a lot of Germans. It was believed that, and maybe, maybe this is true, um, that from Greenland they could see what the weather was going to be as it came down across um, the European front. Mm -hmm. And so they had these weather stations there so they could predict what the weather patterns were going to be so that they could then strategize on like the best, the best way to move move forward on the front. It sounds totally harebrained. Thinking that that's not true, but... Yeah, well, it might be true. I mean, not true that just, one could... Just today, how, how ridiculously inaccurate yeah. weathermen are. Yeah. But anyway, okay. Yeah. So he's up well, I there. think they've always been inaccurate. We just all know it more because we're walking around with a weatherman in our pocket, yeah. and in our phones, so <laughs> we can look at it saying it's going to be 85. Well, we stand in the rain in 62. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so he was up there. He that's where he did most of his yeah his service, and service. then he went. Uh, he was in Massachusetts, and that's where he started his first bookshop. His first bookshop in um, Trenton, Massachusetts, hmm. and he had that bookshop for a year, and then used bookstore or new? I assume it was all used books. Okay, I said Trenton. Excuse me, it was Taunton. Taunton, Taunton, okay, Massachusetts. Good. So then he had that bookshop, and then. Uh, as he was relieved, had served his four years and um, no longer was serving, he started uh, planning his trip to Paris. So he came here in August 1946. and He just wanted to travel, I guess, did he? I think so. And I, uh, he was pretty young, was he? How old was he? So he was born in 1912, so it's like 20s. When did he travel again? So I was in 46. Sometimes so I can't do so math. It's just like 34, yeah. 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 Oh. So, yeah, so he came in 46. But I think George always wanted to have a bookshop. And, you know, he had had this one in Taunton, and he came here, and he was here on the GI Bill, studying at the Sorbonne, and living in this student housing called uh, Cité Universitaire, which is still there today. Um, and he... Just like a dorm? 
that's I think it's just a a big swath of student housing. Yeah. That's my impression. That's my impression of it. So he was there, and because he's on the GI Bill, he was getting rations to buy all you know to buy food and all sorts of things, and they had book rations, and so George would trade his food rations with other GIs for their book rations. And so as soon as he arrived, he started accumulating a, a library of English language books, which you know otherwise would have been quite expensive mm-hmm. to come by at that time. And again, I assume, because it's right after the war, these are used books. Um, but so he then had his room at City Universitaire, and he said he would just leave the door open so people could come in and out and borrow the books and return his books. From there, he moves on to um, a rooming place on Boulevard uh, Saint-Michel called the Hotel Suez, uh, where he had a small windowless room. And it was the same like thing. Like Marcel Proust, then. Was it a small windowless room? Yeah, I think so. I've also not read Proust. You're just going <laughs> to out me for everything I've not read. <laughs> you didn't have to tell me that, but okay. Well, I'm not one to fake it. No, then no, 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 good. It's good. awkward good. <laughs> when someone does that. It's evident. It's always evident. No, no, he's famous. Uh, Proust is famous for having a cork-lined room. Oh, I did know. Yeah. So but I didn't realize there were no windows. Well, you never, uh, you, you know, there could have been windows, mm-hmm. but my sense is that there wasn't. Okay. But that's another thing we'll have to... Yeah, I'll have to look up. Check that out. Okay. So he had so a small windowless room. Yeah, and it was, he called it the old, uh, old smoky reading room because George, you know, chains chain smoke for much of his life until then he quit and became you know militant about not smoking but he would then and live to 98 and live till 98 so he had this room and again would just leave the door open so people would come in and out and this is how he meets what he would call his oldest friend that he would have was Lawrence Ferlinghetti then called Lawrence Ferling Mm -hmm. Lawrence Ferlinghetti had dated George's sister Mary in school in New York at Columbia they had met one another and uh, George's sister Mary had given Ferlinghetti um, a letter of introduction to George, and so Ferlinghetti just shows up at this room one day and meets George. And I think, I mean, well, I, I'm pausing, so I was going to say, and they hit it off. But you know, I don't think George was like George is a great eccentric. You know, I don't think he's someone who's quite hitting it off with people. But mm. I think they found a like-minded man in one another, somebody who was devoted to. Re- to reading and, and writers um, and the literary life. And, and to books, too, obviously, yeah, to books. like the, to, the, mm-hmm. to the acquisition of books, mm-hmm. I, I imagine. Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, and Ferlinghetti said, like, George had this incredible library mm-hmm. of books that nobody else, there was no, you know, library and that was free and that one could just come in and... Wasn't there the American... Yeah, but I don't think it's... Was it free? I don't know. I can't, I don't think so. Okay. We'd have to double check. I, I yeah. don't want to say that. No, no, okay. That it cost a bunch of money. Your impression. So my is impression is that it wasn't. You had to pay. Free. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so that's how I met. And when I went through after George passed away, I, I was the person who sorted through his archives. I found a postcard from 1958 from uh, Ferlinghetti sent to George or a note left to George asking him, you know, if he had these books and if so, that Ferlinghetti was going to come and get them. What do you mean? He was going to go all the way from San Francisco? No, no, he was here. Oh, yes. For, okay, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that would be impressive. <laughs> Good reason for a trip to France. <laughs> okay. I'll cut that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave it in. <laughs> okay, so I'll go and get the books, and uh, they 
sort of hit it off as mm-hmm. best they could. Why are we talking about? We're talking about the places George lived, and so yeah. so by this time, as we're getting to the late forties, George has accumulated, you know, probably he's getting up to like a thousand books of his own in his own collection and running mm-hmm. this informal lending library. That's very decent of him, too. I don't like to lend my books out, because yeah. I figure it's hard to get them back. Yeah. He obviously was... I think they were always open... hard to get them back. Right. I think George was a bit of... A positive is a word I don't think he would use, but like a bit of a spiritualist about like putting the right person in contact with the right book. Well, to change their life. Yeah. yeah, and I just think through um, throughout his life and having this bookshop, you know, people would come in and he would meet them and say, you've got to read this and sort of insist that the person have the book, you know, to the point of like yeah. not charging them for the book. Putting the book in their hands and... Just insisting really, that it was yeah. for them to read. So wait a sec, um, the, that was a, the, so he was, an, it was an informal lending library that mm-hmm. then morphed into something, right? Sort of. So he had this place in his room. It was just in his room yeah. on uh, Boulevard Saint-Michel. And then in, he's always look, was looking for years to find a space. And when he found you know, where the shop is right now at 37 Rue de la Boucherie, he said like, then he, he knew like this was the space that he had been waiting for and was able to purchase it. It was you know, the equivalent of like 500 American dollars neighborhood wasn't the bustling central Paris that it is now, and certainly not a touristic neighborhood. Isn't this where all the, the roads in Paris start from, ground zero? It's right across the street, right in front of Notre Dame, it's kilometer, kilometer zero, Yeah. the point at which all roads in France begin. And that is, you know, it's moving in a radius out of the kilometer marker um, that you'll see on every road. And so kilometer zero, where the numbering counting starts, is in, right in front of Notre Dame. People, mm-hmm. You can walk through, there's a plaque on the ground, and, and yeah. you can stand in this space. Right. So, yeah, George, I mean, we are in kilometer zero yeah, here at the yeah. bookshop. But at that point, it was kind of divey then. Yeah, I mean, George used the term slum, but it was primarily an immigrant community still in this area. I think it's primarily a lot of Algerians in this, in this area. It would abut um, the Latin Quarter, which would be a lot of students. So, you know, small rooms, lots of people smushed into small spaces. So really lively, um, but, you know, certainly was not a bon address. It was not a wealthy neighborhood mm-hmm. at that point. So he found the place. That must have mm-hmm. been a happy day for him. Mm-hmm. So it had been an, uh, a grocery store owned by an Algerian man and who wanted to move his family to the countryside. So George bought the space from him. Um, and the space that he bought, you know, the bookshop has expanded so much since then. So if someone knows the shopper comes in, you can see a little bit. You have to use your imagination to imagine the original space, which was, you know, just the ground floor and just the right side of the shop. So I think it's no more than 16 feet across, like 12 or 16 feet across, running railroad style, you know, from the, the front windows. There's one room and then a second room, and third room, railroad style, you know, no windows other than this front, this front window. And also there was no electricity at the time. So everything was done uh, by candlelight, which, you know, if you know Paris in the winter, it's Nighttime comes like four fifteen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and and George loved to cook for people too. So he had this can of sterno, which is a how do you explain the sterno? It's 
like it's like a camping, you know, like a camping mm-hmm. fire. And so he would put that on. He had a desk made out of old suitcases, and he'd get this little sterno going and uh, put a big pot on top of it and uh, start making stew. George loved to cook for people. I think, I guess I'll just say, like, the quality of the ingredients, (laughs) I think some people have found wanting over the years. In the 50s, George had a dog who they called uh, Francois Villon, which is after his famous French poet, who, I think from, like, the mid-1500s, and he was both this great poet and this, like, great thief who was constantly in and out of prison and who lived in this neighborhood, like, really directly, like, right where the bookshop is. And... George had named his dog Francois Villon, and in part because, according to one person, George had taught the dog to beg for um, meat scraps at the butchers. So the dog would go beg for these meat scraps and bring them back to George, and then George would be able to make his beef stew for the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> according to according to one person, yeah. Okay, who's that one person? So that was according to a woman whose name is Claire Cahane. Um, and she lived, which I'm sure we'll get to, she lived in the Beat Hotel in the 1950s. And lots of residents of the Beat Hotel, uh, so named because that's where Ginsburg lived, Corso, William Burroughs, otherwise no-name hotel about five minutes from here. They, a lot of the residents of the Beat Hotel hung out here in the, in the 50s. Wow, that's a, that's a, a story of deprivation, but... Resourcefulness. Well, I think too. it's resourcefulness. Yeah. I mean, I think George hmm. was a very, very canny, very resourceful, very thrifty. But I think, you know, for myself, who had grandparents who were from the great the era Depression. of the Great Depression, mm-hmm. I, I do think that that just really per, for most people, you mm-hmm. know, that just really permanently changes oh, the way yeah. that one sees resources. It, uh, yeah, I'm a, a friend of mine's father, he can't go to the supermarket without buying six boxes of cereal mm-hmm. and bringing them home and storing them. Yeah, and it manifests you. My grandfather's best friend, when he was up and more agile, would drive along the interstates of uh, you know, outside Minneapolis, St. Paul, in his van, and he would he would see things on the road and would just stop to get them. You know, mm-hmm. one day it was a huge pile of rags, and he just couldn't believe somebody had thrown out this pile of rags because you just had to wash them, and mm-hmm. then you had this fold them, and then you had this nice supply of rags. Speaking of rags, that's a, that's your uh, subtitle for this book: the history mm-hmm. of the rag and bone shop of the heart. That's uh, Yates. That's right, from uh, the circus animals desertion. Why did you uh, entitle the book that? Uh, the Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart is um, how George started referring to the shop in the late 50s, early 60s. In letters, you know, he would make little flyers or advertisements, and he, and he was always referring, it to, referring to it as the Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart. Okay, so we go through the 50s. Again, he's, uh, you're painting a picture of a man who's very, I think, seems to me, altruistic. Yeah, I mean, well, what I'll say, because we can say with confidence, is, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti called George Whitman the most eccentric man he'd ever met. I would think Lawrence Ferlinghetti, you know, knows eccentrics. Mm-hmm. So to be the most, to me, seems quite uh, striking. Yeah, but what does that mean? What does eccentric mean? I, like, how, how, you how know, did he live that? He opened up, uh, since the bookshop opened, George has had free beds in the shop that strangers have been invited to come and live in the bookstore. And 
you know, we estimate since the bookshop opened, more than 30,000 people have stayed in the stayed in the bookstore. I mean, that to me, it's like, I, I don't want to house guests for longer than two nights. <laughs> so uh, here's, you know, here's a man who let 30,000 people into what is, you know, for all purposes, his home. And his business. And his business. Yeah. Yeah, and there's just always an incredible trust on offer mm-hmm. in the shop. You know, I, I don't know if that's eccentric though. To me, it's it's it's, it's quite particular. It's quite, but that's quite. You know, some good-hearted people. Like mm-hmm. none of them have strangers no. living in their house. I mean, it's it's very specific. Mm-hmm. So I think there's that, and then it was mixed with, and I didn't know George. I should say. I came to the shop just a few months after after he'd had a stroke and a few months um, before he passed away. And so I didn't meet him. When was that? I came in in uh, the end of 2011. So I don't want to speak as if I'm somebody who knows George personally, but I, yeah. I, having read all of his journals and letters and having spoken to his family and so many of his friends, I, sure I do feel like I have a great sense of him. who he was. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, George, uh, to meet George wasn't to meet, like, a friendly, benevolent, you know, altruistic person. I mean, he was fiery. He could be stubborn. He could be warm and inviting one moment and then... Um, ang- yeah, the angry and the next second. Mm. I mean, I think... For a lot of people, that added to his charm. But it was a certain kind of person who could stay with George. You know, mm-hmm. I think he did offend a lot of people or confuse people yeah. um, by how he acted. You know, Ferlinghetti said about him. Ferlinghetti's still alive. Isn't he is he? still alive. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Ferlinghetti said about George after he'd passed away that you know he was George's oldest. That George was his oldest friend, and that he'd known him the longest of anyone he knew who still alive but that in all their correspondence you know there was always a formality hat to mm. how George would interact with him and Ferlinghetti stayed it when he came to Paris he would stay in the bookshop and they would spend this time together but George wasn't I think some it wasn't a warm teddy bear kind no. of guy prickly perhaps a bit but not always yeah no, like mercurial no. as you said like okay okay yeah Okay, so it, it wasn't called Shakespeare and Company until 58. Uh, 64. 64. So the first name was Le Mistral, which was named, I think, after one of George's girlfriends, who was herself named after the winds off the Mediterranean, and after, also after Gabriela Mistral, who was a Chilean poet. George, George married? No. Never no, married? No, he married um, Sylvia's mom in, yeah. in the 80s. Oh, that late? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, he didn't marry his younger man. So he had this bookshop, La Mistral, and Sylvia Beach, who had had Shakespeare and Company, as I said, um, through friends, mostly through Lawrence Durrell and Richard Wright, had started coming to the shop and buying books and had come to know George. And we don't have record of this, but as we understand from a man named Clive Hart, who's a Joyce scholar who was at the shop at the time. In 1958, there was a party for James Jones, uh, who wrote From Here to Eternity, who had just uh, moved to Paris party hosted by George, and Sylvia Beach also came to this party, and uh, she gave a little speech and said that she considered this bookshop, George's bookshop, the spiritual successor to her own, and would give him the name Shakespeare and Company. So according to the New York Times, this is why I know, according to the New York Times, after there was a plaque after that that went up that said Shakespeare and Company that Sylvia Beach had given George, and George had put in the window of this bookshop. 
Um, but he didn't change the name until 1964, which was, and we were just discussing this, the 400th okay. anniversary of William Shakespeare's birth. Very good. Let's just spend a little bit of time on the book. It's beautiful. It's like, as, as I was saying, I, it's kind of like a beautiful, very professional scrapbook of all of the stuff that you came across in your research. Would, mm -hmm. the, would that be accurate? It is. We started working on this right after George passed away. And so he had a hundred years worth of papers and letters and photographs and, you know, all the people who stay in the bookshop are asked to leave a one-page autobiography, so all of that, and just everything that George had collected over um, almost a hundred years, and it hadn't ever been put into, well, some people, the tumbleweed bios were pretty uh, much in What do you order. mean a hundred years? He, I mean, he didn't He collect. lived to... He lived to 98, 98 he, and he the, wasn't, he wasn't collecting stuff until... Well, the oldest thing I found in there was his baby book with his, that his okay. mother had made him with the oh, locks okay. of his baby hair. Almost a hundred years. Yeah. Then. Okay. And letters that he had sent back to his parents when he was um, sent away to camp when he was eight. <laughs> it really was okay. um, an extraordinary archive. All his journals and letters when he traveled after college, um, and before he served in the war. So it was really just everything. And it took me almost two years to go through uh, all the papers and put them into chronological order and to read everything that was there and to see what we had, what we have George's, what we had at the shops, um, mm -hmm. all the guest books from the shops, you know, with signatures from famous writers who'd come through. So that was that was the first step, and it really was an extraordinary experience getting to meet the shop that way because it felt like the shop was telling me its story, as opposed to you know other ways that we encounter things. It's it's already been interpreted for us, mm -hmm. and I think what I which is what I wanted to do wanted to avoid doing with the book was overly interpreting for the reader what the shop was. I wanted the reader um, to be able to form her own feelings about the shop and what it meant. Because it is a history and it's a collection of dates and facts and famous names. But I think the reason people keep coming back to Shakespeare and Company is more because of the feeling that they have here. It moves something personal in them, whether through nostalgia or emotions they might have now or ambitions they might have for a life that they want to lead. It really touches um, something in people. So I wanted Because it's the book much, much more than a bookshop. It is. And I, so I wanted the book to reflect that openness and to let it, let there be room for the reader to bring himself or herself um, to the space in the same way that you bring your own self into the shop when you walk through the doors. You don't walk through the shop with a tour guide telling you what to I yeah, did. I you did. did. You did. Yeah. I'm, I'm special. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd been here before on your own too. I, I have. Yeah. So I wanted the book to work in that way. At the same time, you know, for people who own the shop now, which is George's only child, um, Sylvia Whitman and her husband David Delaney, we did want to also have a book that establishes the facts and the history of Shakespeare and Company, mm -hmm. and that could be a primary resource in understanding the bookstore and how it moved through time, how it interacted with Parisian history, um, with the expat communities here. So the book does that. And the way that I did this was, like as you said, to have both a scrapbook effect of 
photographs and archival pieces that just stand on their own. And then I also collected we have about 70 first-person stories from people who've been through the shop, poems from people who are in the shop or about the shop. And then I've written, I don't know, maybe 30,000 words that run through all of that that then give this much more straightforward, fact-based history of the shop. Is all your stuff in pink? Or just is that just me looking at your Yeah, stuff? my int- my introduction is in Love pink. It. I like that. It's pretty, isn't it? We had worked with a really um, gifted designer. I mean, Who's so you the could, designer? Uh, his name is Laurent Stoskopf. He's French. Laurent. Laurent Stoskopf? Yes. And is he uh, independent? He is, yeah. Okay. Paris-based. How would you find him? I did, you know, I just did a ton of looking uh, to find designers and we did send the project out I, I really had it in my head that all of these things had to be mixed together and I have a design background so as I was thinking about the book I did have in mind what the presentation would be it was really important to me that it not be just all the tumbleweed bios together all my texts together all the photos together I, I really wanted it to be much more impressionistic much something that would be much more active uh, for the reader, and of course then, but it not to be overly complicated. I can hear myself talking. I think you just, one would imagine, just a mess of a book. So we did need to have a really great designer who could bring an almost like mathematical precision to how these things would um, fall together. It looks like a really cool, really trendy, I'm thinking of Granta, but mm-hmm. it, it, that's, the, that's the look of it a bit. Yeah. Uh, magazine, yeah. Huh. Yeah, so we really, so we found, we had found some designers um, and we'd asked people to do sample designs and Laurent was really the only, he's a very precise. Well, you're very designer. well organized, so you obviously hit it off. Yeah, thank and you. Well, I say, well we you knew tell me you are. You yeah. tell me you are. I, I, I haven't seen any evidence yeah. of it. But. Well, you're holding it in your hand. When That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love the way you've got these bold colors of mm-hmm. pages uh, throughout, you know, reds and brilliant orange and yellow. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's lovely. Yeah, it's quite a... Quite a book, and you, and itself, well, the the book, the store published, the book. Yes. So who did you use to make the book? We're on our second printing. The first printing was done in Belgium by a great printer called Snell, and then for the second printing, we moved to which found a really lovely, lovely printer um, here in France, in the south of France called um, Art et Caractère. Sorry? Art et Caractère, Art and Character. This is me saying ah, Art oui, oui. Character with a French accent. Very good, very Art good. Art Character yeah. in the south of France. and why, why did you move? We just got a better deal. Better. Okay, <laughs> uh, good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was really the reason. Both, both sure. printers were really wonderful, but... And what did you send them? Did you give them all the... Like the whole thing was just laid out and mm-hmm. sent to the printer yeah, by, just the sent design, res, by yep. Laurent. Yeah, just high res PDFs. Um, okay. And then we went, for both of them, we went to the printing and did all the color 
color correction and color matching. And so these both of these printers are known for being good book, like they, they did the binding and everything? I think they sent out the binding. They sent it out, but they, yeah. they took the, the, the whole project. Yeah. Well, now it's time to look at today. You've got a thriving cafe right next door that George apparently always coveted. He'd always wanted a cafe there. Now it's reality. Yeah, since yeah, since 2015. You know, so George had always wanted to open a cafe. He'd also always wanted to expand the bookshop. The last time the bookshop had expanded was 1981. And you know, now we're here in central Paris. It's become a more touristic neighborhood. The places opening up around here and, and the ability to expand the bookshop, which means an adjoining space. It's rare. You know, you can't just make that happen. You, can, you know, so the shop today, as I said, is owned by Sylvia and David. Lucky for them and also poor things, suddenly within like two years, all these abutting spaces opened up around the bookshop. So it has expanded quite quickly in the last, you know, in quite a few spaces in the in the last two years. And it really is labyrinth-like, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really yeah. is. But really sort of expanded that quickly out of just um, being pragmatic. It was like, this is your chance to take this space if you want it, otherwise you might be waiting another 75 years. So um, the corner space George always wanted for the cafe became available, and so they got that, which was also really quite nice because the people, there was one other group that had their eyes set on it. It was a, a chain ice cream shop. Oh, so, no. so yeah. we're really quite happy with the, For like, sure. that it's um, this cafe. Yeah. But really, like when I was going through the archives, I found drawings dating back from like 1965 that George had done of what the exterior, the facade of the shop was going to look like once he had um, this space, had this cafe space. Mm-hmm. So they um, yeah, expanded in the cafe, and then we have a couple new rooms, too, in the bookshop. One, an expanded children's section, mm-hmm. which is on the ground floor. The children's section used to be on what the French call the uh, first floor, that Americans call the second floor, and Canadians call the second floor, too, yeah? I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought you were Canadian. Yeah, but I don't, uh, okay. I don't know what is... What are you li- Sorry, I need to focus you, because I was listening to those bells, yeah. and I was saying... I've got to, you see, I'm not even listening to you. Mm-hmm. I'm doing exactly what an interviewer shouldn't do, <laughs> which is to think about their next question oh, yeah, okay. while you're talking. Well, I'm, I'm rambling I'm, about floors. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> so we're both to blame. But, of course, you're right next to Notre Dame Cathedral, yeah. just, just so people know. And there's a lovely little, little patio out front mm-hmm. with used books and et cetera. So yeah, for those who don't know. So what was your question about oh, the second floor? Oh, I was just floor? saying, oh, it doesn't matter. No, no, it so does. I, I, need to I was just saying that in the States, what we, well, in France we call the first floor. In the States they call the second floor. Because it's one up from the ground floor, the French call it the first floor, mm-hmm. the Americans call that the second floor. Yes. I think we pretty well copy the Americans on yeah, that one. smart. No, that's not smart. No, definitely not smart. Not no, these days, anyway. Not these days, no. Yeah. So anyway, okay. so the children's section used to be on the first floor, but it was so impossible with people coming with their strollers. And Anyway, so um, if people visit the shop today who haven't been here in 10 years, like, it is... Yeah, Different. like it's yeah. growing. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of octopus climbing up through the interior of the building. 
before I forget, we, you did reference the tumbleweeds. Mm-hmm. Better talk a little bit about what that means. Okay, so since the shop first opened, George has invited people to stay for free in the bookstore, which I mentioned before. And since then, we estimate 30,000 people have mm-hmm. stayed in the shop. And George called these people tumbleweeds uh, because he said he, they blew in and out on the winds of chance. So people who stay in the shop, they tend, it's not always, but they tend to be younger people in their early, mid-20s, sometimes their early 30s. Occasionally there's a much older tumbleweed, but usually it's, usually it's younger folks. Right now, I think Writers. Wannabe writers. Writers, writers, artists. We call it the Tumbleweed Hotel, but it's not a hotel. I mean, you can't book in advance. Um, It's free. The way to stay is just, you have to show up and ask to meet Sylvia um, or the bookshop manager, whose name is Octavia. And if there's a space, then they'll have a chat with the person who wants to stay. And just really to get a sense of this person and what they plan on working on while they're here. Are, you know, to answer, you know, are they trustworthy? Because yeah. this person is going to have keys in and out of the bookshop and access to the shop after everyone's gone home at night. Uh, Slag, Sylvia, and David live here, or are there any other staff members who live here? Mm. So it's a tradition that, yeah, really started when the shop first opened, mm. George letting people crash here, and, you know, that really went through the 60s and these hippie times into the 70s where there was, like, a real commune <laughs> vibe with mm. the Paris and lots of places around the world, uh, into the 80s when air travel became, you know, just more and more... Of relatively affordable and you had ever more backpackers into the 90s when at that point George was in his late 80s uh, and I think the tumbleweeds really had the run of the place you know there could be as many as 25 at a time and I think it was a lively atmosphere lots of quote-unquote romance and <laughs> good times um, but since Sylvia has taken over you know it's uh, it's a little <laughs> more serious-minded it's okay. no more than six people Better organized. Um, yeah, better organized. No more than six people at a time. And the tumbleweeds help out around the shop, but I think some people think that that's who works at the shop. But really, they aren't the employees. It's, there's really experienced booksellers who work now at Shakespeare and Company. And the tumbleweeds are here having their own experience, maybe learning about running a shop, but they're not the ones who, who are working here behind the till. Anything else about the shop that uh, you think the world should know about? that they don't already? I'll just say one of the things that I, a couple things that I just really appreciate about the shop. You know, I came here, um, I'd been an editor in the States and I had left my job just looking at uh, Zoetrope. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'd been there quite cool a Cool magazine. Time. It's mm-hmm. a great magazine. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a real thrill to be there. Mm-hmm. And we were a very small staff. It was myself, um, really one other editor, Michael Ray, and... We worked, you know... Where is that located? In San Francisco. Yeah. And we had a lot of autonomy and really just reported directly to Francis Coppola. So it was a really wonderful, unusual, artistic experience, you know, for a paid gig, really lucky, the kind of thing that, you know, there's not a ton of, ton of mm-hmm. jobs like that mm-hmm. out uh, in the world. Yeah. Um, so it was a really, really tough to leave because I thought... I'll never have something like this again. And I won't in, in some ways. But I'm sorry, I just totally distracted myself. Being like, ah, oh, it's great days. It's so true. I sorry, I'm going to have to cut this because I'm like, where was I going with that? No, I'm not going to cut uh, that. That's good stuff. <laughs> no, no, you can keep that, but you'll have to cut out this, like, murmur. 
But so I'd left, so I'd left Zoetrope and had come to Paris, and so, so, so I left, this is what I wanted to say, so I left that, and it was kind of the sleep of faith of leaving something that I loved, but mm. I'd been working. It takes at, courage to yeah, do that. Yeah, but, and I'd, but I'd been at the company since I was 25, mm. and I was then 27, or 37, and feeling like, am I going to be here forever? Mm. And it's like, well, I could be, and I'd be happy, but is that what I'm going to do? No, I want to have these other, just try other things. And mm. so I'd just come to Paris on vacation, and for a long vacation, six weeks, and I'd met Sylvie and offered to volunteer around the shop, and that led to me helping somebody else kind of start creating a template for how you could start organizing this information about the shop's history and just start the research process, um, which then turned into contract work, which then turned into my being here full-time. And the reason I tell this long thing is just to say, like, I came to Paris and I didn't know anyone. And the shop for me, and this is what I would hope people know, like, it's still such an alive place of the heart, you know. It's become famous and ever more famous, and you can come here and there will be a lot of people around. But the heart of it and what it's trying to do both for writers and for readers and for young, aspiring writers, for yeah, people should, like should me. I should mention there's also a great reading series or a great, a great lineup. event of, series. Yeah, yeah, it seems like uh, all the great best writers of today are yeah. wanting to come here. Yeah, they've just done a really great job. We had Nicole Krauss is here last night. Mm -hmm. Rebecca Solna is here on Tuesday. Bruce Handy later in the week. Uh, really every week we're just so lucky to have great writers coming through. And again, like there, all these events take place in the bookshop. They're free. Everyone's invited. Anyone's welcome. Yeah, uh, and if there's if it's full inside, you spill out onto the little patio outside, mm -hmm. and, right? Yeah, and we've had put speakers mm -hmm. outside so people can listen. In the winter, yeah. we have in the upstairs we have a screen so people can go upstairs and watch a video of the event because it's the bookshop state space is small so we can't fit hundreds of people into the one room yeah. with the author but this we is where they the talk everybody around ethan hawke filmed that mm -hmm. yeah ethan hawke and julie delpy in yeah. uh before sunset yeah okay before sunset. <laughs> Uh, but Sorry, but I interrupt you talking oh, okay. about your heart. So no, it's okay. So, but I just want to say, like, I hope I didn't break your heart. No, it's okay. That's no, okay. <laughs> no, intact. So it's tough. Let's I'm a toughie. Okay, let's continue uh, with the heart. Yes, yeah, so I just so I thought myself like as this kind of wanderer, really found a home here, and you know, a, a place that absolutely welcomed me in, mm. and now introduced me to everybody who's in my life, and I'm not in an, an unusual mm. person that way. Um, you earlier were talking to the tumbleweeds, and I think you can get that sense of how special it is for them to be here and mm. how a part of things and the mm. arts and literary world one feels here. Well, um, it's so cool, as you say, is you've got these great authors coming mm -hmm. by, and often they'll stay overnight here, and they'll, mm -hmm. these young kids get to meet some big-name authors, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And just hang out with them. That's yeah. pretty exciting. I think that's exciting, and I think... There's that, and I think in addition to it, there's also just the staff and different people around here that are so encouraging. It's, it's just mm. not a cynical space, which right. it's not to say other places are, but yeah. it's just lovely that this one isn't. Like all these young people who are staying here, it's like you want them to succeed and you want to encourage mm -hmm. them. And well, it's great to be around young, non-cynical, hopeful yeah. 
and it keeps I think for all of us who work here like yeah there, there's a youthful vibe in the shop and mm. that's because there are these like very hopeful youthful <laughs> yeah. people yeah. who are yeah. here so I'd say that about the shop and I, I just really respect with um, what Sylvie and David have done with the shop in balancing what is a growing interest in the bookstore with also keeping, you know, all the upstairs, for the most part, the, the books aren't for sale. It just yeah. is a place for people to come and read and hang out and pet the cat and play the piano and still having the tumbleweed program. Although, the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of traffic here, so yeah. uh, hanging out and reading is Well, I was going to say, this would be my last thing to say. If people are interested in coming into the shop and really appreciating it, the thing to do is come anytime during the winter. I mean, there are nights that I've gone down. I tend to come in later and stay later. There are nights that I go down at 8 o'clock and there's, like, no one in the bookshop in the winter. I mean, it's just as charming and cozy as you can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. um, but if one has to come in the summer, you know, the, during the week after, like, 6 or 7 p.m., it's really a time that somebody can come and have really enjoy the shop in their own way and not feel like there's so many other people around. Thank you for uh, sharing uh, with us your experience of Shakespeare and Company and, uh, and the history of the shop and the people behind it. It was, uh, it was lovely to, to listen to you talk. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for asking me and, and for asking the shop to, to be with you. It's really great. So let's uh, quickly plug the book again. Uh, how can people get their hands on this book and buy it? Again, if you're in Paris, come to Shakespeare and Company, okay. and or it's on our website. Um, otherwise, it is in bookshops. It's in lots of independent bookshops, and it is online at bigger e-retailers if you are inclined that way. We're not, but some people are, I guess. Some people are. I've been speaking with Krista Halverson, who maybe you could tell me what, exactly what you do here. I am now the publishing director. So we have other publishing projects that we're starting, not all related to Shakespeare and Company. So I'm overseeing those So you're projects. not a one author? Uh... No, I mean, I do like to joke that I was hired as the publishing director and then I hired myself to do the first book. So it's like <laughs> the greatest act of nepotism in publishing history. And <laughs> I'm quite proud of myself for pulling it off. Okay. Uh, but you, and that did actually have the other way. What, what are you planning? There's two things I'm primarily working on on right now one and something else I did hire myself to do another project and um, <laughs> I'm editing a, a collection of poetry around a theme which I won't say now people are, are on you know the edges of their seats for new poetry collections Ooh, so yeah, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't want to spoil the well, unless you're Rupi Kaur <laughs> then you're yeah. but okay yeah uh, so it's a collection of poetry and then I don't know if I can say this again these things like see you know it's such a small world of what, what we're doing. But also, I'll just say we're working, we're partnering with a bigger publisher to bring out a classic reprint of a bestseller here in the shop. Okay. When you turn your recorder off, I'll let you guess. And if you get it in three tries, you can have something free at the cafe. All right. Okay. I'm licking my chops right now. Thanks so much again, yeah, Krista. Yeah, thank you. Okay.